Our guest today is a three-time USA National Cyclocross champion heading into the most important part of her season with the World Championships just around the corner. She's used to dealing with mud and dirt, so we thought we'd give her a break to talk to us from the comfort of her hotel room. Please enjoy our chat with Clara Hansinger. Okay, everyone, we have Clara Hansinger today on Bobby and Jens. Welcome, Clara. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you for joining us. As we understand, you are in serious final preparation for the World Championships at the start of February, which is just right around the corner in the Netherlands. Um, only a few weeks to go. How are you feeling at the moment? And what is what is your uh, expectations of the upcoming big world championship cyclocross event? Yeah, I'm feeling pretty good. I'm down here in Spain after a couple of weeks in Belgium doing what's called the curse period of races. So really back to back to back racing over Christmas, which gets pretty, it wears down on your body a bit. Uh, especially with the Belgian weather. So getting some good training in here in Spain, drying out a bit, and changing uh, changing my focus onto the world championships, which, yeah, are back in Hoogerheide, the Netherlands. It's the ending point of my so- cyclocross season, so I have uh, a really big goal for it this year. So you over the jet lag, climate change, all that, you adapted to European weather and time did you have a chance to look at the circuit and is there anything special you need to prepare carry your bike is there more running is there sand is it's going to be muddy anything special we our listeners need to know about it so Hugerheide in the netherlands is a pretty iconic course it's been raced for probably two decades at least now and The course has changed a little bit over the years, but it's pretty iconic as a Belgian-Dutch cyclocross in that it's uh, pretty, there's a little bit of, it can be really anything depending on the weather. If it's dry, it'll be fast and just ripping. There's a little wood section where you're going probably like 60k an hour down this little hill. Uh, but if it's muddy, it can just be a full mud bog and maybe you're running most of the course. It's really known for having, in the past five years or so, they built a really big staircase with a significant off-camber on it, which, given the conditions, could be a really challenge, big challenge. Well, I had a very brief cyclocross career. Um, Got to go way back. It was like 1989. And we would race on Saturday and Sunday, and I'd get all banged up. And then I'd have to go to school, high school, on Monday. All these cuts and bruises all over my body, and they would heal right before the next weekend. And then I'd basically just rip off all the scabs and put the new bruises on there time after time. But when you said that over that Christmas period that you were racing so often, how do you deal with that time in between when you are a little bit sore from the previous race? You take a lot of time to, to focus on your body to make sure, first of all, if you've had an injury in a race, that you immediately jump on it. Um, yeah, and lots of just kind of ease, easy, easy time on the bike and ra- relaxing and recovery between those races. It's really, you kind of set the training aside during that point and just focus on recovery. 
And um, since you jump on and off the bike and you carry the bike, you do some certain core muscle training, like you do push-ups or whatever, chin-ups, sit-ups, all sort of <laughs> things to be just in general more strong so you can carry that bike and jump over these obstacles quicker? Or is that just a stupid idea of me? No, I mean, with cyclocross particularly, we spend a lot of time doing cross training as in going into the gym or going out and running pretty regularly. However, I think that's a trend that we're starting to see across quite a bit, or most disciplines of cycling, to make sure that we're stronger, we're, we're, we're taking care, we're building muscle and strength in more than one dimension. Yeah, that that's that's got to be tricky. But with how much, like, tell me a little bit about your preparation, because I remember running being a very, very important part. That's where I felt like I was able to make the difference. Uh, I wasn't the best bike handler, um, wasn't the best at getting on and off. But like when when you did have to run, I felt like that was a big advantage. How much do you concentrate on the running part uh, compared to the, the cycling part in, in cyclocross nowadays? I try to integrate them uh, into each other. So... Often running will be involved, we'll go out and do a cyclocross practice, kind of similar to how you'd go out and do a soccer practice. You're going to go run drills in the field. So you find a little course or a circuit in the woods with trails, and maybe there's a little run up in it. So you'll go out and do that. Uh, and yeah, definitely incorporating running into those cyclocross practices. And then additionally, I'll go out at least three times a week and do... 20 to 30 minute runs in the morning at a little bit of sometimes occasionally like a, a trail sprint or uh, a staircase in it, doing a couple sets of those just to the, the get the fast feet and firing in that direction. So that uh, you explained that the weather could be so different in Hogerheide. Um, it could be in a dry weather, a fast race or a very muddy one. Um, we cannot influence it, but what would suit you better? What what it, what weather are you wishing for? Yeah, I'm. Uh, I think I, I'm known pretty well as being a, a. The worse the weather is, the better that I do. So I'm I'm hoping for like a cold, wet, nasty Hogerheide. I think I'll, well, well, it makes a hard day for everyone, especially our mechanics in the pits. It's. Maybe maybe I can persevere a little bit further through it. Tell me a little bit about the importance of that pit. Do you have a set lap that you're going to go in and, and switch your bike, or is it just is it just on feel? Uh, I I'd say it's quite a bit on feel. It's also a little bit the dynamics of the race. Watching the noticing if you're there racing with another rider, often you are. Noticing what they're doing, whether they've taken a clean bike the previous lap, and so maybe they have an advantage there, and uh, you think like, okay, they're not going to pit, so I, I I hope that I I don't need the pit as well. It, yeah, so noticing those around you, and then also being really conscious of what's happening on your bike, uh, whether the gears are shifting cleanly, whether when you pick it up and shoulder it, if it's really heavy and dragging you down, and then. Also the tires, those often pack up with mud if it's really messy and having a clean bike and clean tires will help through certain sections of the race. Well, also the weight factor, right? I mean, there's got to be like three pounds of mud on your bike, right? So you do feel that difference as well, don't you? 
Absolutely. It's sometimes you pick it up and you swear that it's not the same bike that you started with. But it's quite a sense of relief when you do go through the pit and you get that clean bike and you just it's kind of like you you've taken off heavy training wheels and suddenly you have the lightest, fastest wheels and you're just ripping off again. And cyclocross races are are relatively shorter, but they're uber intense, right? Like it is threshold with spurts of VO2 basically the entire time, uh, maybe a little bit of recovery on the descents. How do you fuel or do you even have to fuel during those sort of intense, shorter events compared to what you do on the road? Yeah, it does. That was something I underestimated uh, in the first use that I was doing this, just how energy intensive these races are. Because there is the race itself, which is like doing 50 minutes full gas, an hour full gas. But then you also have a pre-ride in there where you're going to go around and ride endurance. And then maybe you'll do a half lap or a, a lap at kind of higher intensity. They get a feeling for how it rides at speed. So that's going to be about another 30 minutes. And then you're going to throw in 30 minutes of a warm up and then another 15, 30 minutes of a cool down. And totally you end up about doing three hours of riding throughout the day. And so you have to really be conscious that you're feeling uh, throughout the day, kind of from that first pre-ride three hours in advance to uh, all the way through and then after the race. Well, I must say I was terrible at cool downs. <laughs> I think I, t I did tend to just cut them off. But anyway, um, so please uh, tell our listeners, or also me, I'm really interested. How do you manage? Because the start is so important, right? You got to be warm. Your body got to be ready. The muscles got to be hot. How do you manage the time from getting off the home trainer to the call up at the line and try to stay warm at this time while you are waiting at a start line for everybody else to show up. How do you stay warm? What do you do there step by step to, to stay warm and ready? Yeah, so first I try to make that kind of as close as I can, getting off the trainer to getting to the start line and just making it as quick as possible. 20 minutes, hopefully, in the, the best case scenario. And it is really challenging because we are racing and rain, sometimes even snow. And I, I think it, I saw this trend or, not, or this phenomenon starting a few years ago with uh, Evie Richards, where she, we're all, we're going to the line and just like a cycling jacket uh, and maybe some zip off tights. And she would go to the line in like this full down parka with a, a fur lined hood. And so it kind of was like, what are we all doing here? Just shivering in the cold while she's all warm in this full-on coat. So, yeah, it does take quite a bit of layers to, to make it even to the line. One thing that I, I just, I love watching cyclocross. And like I said, I have a, a very brief um, and ancient view of it. But it seems like quite often there's only one line, one racing line around certain turns. Tell me a little bit about your mindset when you're trying to pass someone that's slower, but it's not necessarily like, tell me about that whole passing overtaking mindset that you have to have. Is it just like, wait for your moment and then pounce? Or is it kind of deviating from that racing line to go around where you know it's going to take a little bit more energy? Yeah, it can really be either depending on the situation. If 
it, it's all about, yeah, just finding the space in a race, like in a course and using your energy wisely. If you're going to go and take that longer line uh, that maybe is going to require a greater effort, you, you better make sure that you make it. Because if you're not, that's, that's uh, a few matches that you've potentially burned. And then if you do see someone open the door, it's, it's all about getting in there as quickly as you can. Yeah, it's got to get a little dicey, right? Like there's got to be a couple times where you're like, I don't know if this is going to work. Um, yeah. I, I just love that whole aspect of the thinking part because like you're lactated up to your eyeballs and you're trying to find fit into these places that don't really exist until you make it. So yeah, yeah I'm, I'm really interested on hearing how that how that works from your perspective. Um, you got to be mean, right? You got to be pushy. You can't be miss nice lady the whole time yeah you really have to like not only trying to make those passes but you also have to be a bit conscious on the other side of blocking those passes making sure that you're defending your space huh. that when you're if you're approaching a corner and you want to take the racing line that you're doing it so fast enough that nobody's going to come on your inside and take it from you it really even though you are like they're cross-eyed going full gas, it's a lot of just being aware of everything that's happening around you. So you mean you got to have some situation awareness. You got to know where is the next competitor behind me? What is that woman ahead of me doing? And if they are trying to pass, you got to balance all these things in your mind, right? It's like a little check game while you move along, right? Yeah, cyclocross really has so many dimensions to it because there's like the, the fitness part. You need to be strong. You need to be able to, to put out that effort for an hour. Then you also need the tech, the technical capacity, the tech, or like being able to ride that terrain and uh, handle a bike well, and then throwing in the tactic to it, where knowing when to throw those matches in, where you can make moves, and where how to defend your space. It's there's just so many dimensions. Can I ask you a little bit about the technique of getting off the bike? 1989, I remember getting off on the left side, leaving the left foot in the pedal, clip, clipping out on the right, and actually running through the inside of my left leg. But now I see a lot of people, they seem to be, uh, they have their left leg out, and then they kind of like click that out first instead of kind of running through. Um, I don't know if you really understand or visualize what I'm trying to say, but do you do you run through or do you kind of like click out and then click out the other leg and then start running? Yeah. <clears throat> so the first technique you're describing is what, what's called the step through. And that is kind of the classic, uh, the finesse, you would say, uh, technique, the, the jump off your bike. And so that they say that a reason they do is because it kind of sets you like one stride ahead when you're, you're stretching, you're sticking your legs through past your other and you're one step ahead and off the bike and you're already there. However, it's pretty risky if you don't quite get your legs through, then potentially you're, you're not off your bike and you're smashing into that barrier or falling off the off camber. And so I think what we see much more often right now, just because it's easier and a safer maneuver, is that clipping your leg off behind you and just kind of hopping off and jumping into stride from there. That, that's what I do because I'm not 
as I said, there's so many dimensions, so much going on that throwing in that one more step through technique is really just pushing it a little bit far. So then let's uh, go further ahead with this. Now we jumped off the bike, we run, jumped over the obstacle. Now we want to get back onto the bike, right? Um, it took me a while and every winter again it does to drop the middle hop. You know which one I mean when you mm. don't jump off straight, but you do one more this <laughs> hobbling, hobbling move because you're afraid to jump on into the wrong position and you hurt yourself while you smash down on your seat. Do you ever do that or are you pro enough that you nah, never ever I do that middle jump or this, you know, whatever you call that in proper English? Yeah, the hop. Um, I don't quite know what the, the term is for that, but I'd say earlier on <clears throat> in racing, I I probably had a little bit of a hop, but we just do it. You practice again and again and again. And I mean, over the season, I can't even imagine how many dismounts and remounts I've done. I think I, today in practice, I probably had 50. And so when you multiply that, you're like tens of thousands of times, which you get pretty smooth after a while. Well, okay, you're 25 years old. It's not like you're Jens and I's age. Um, so have you always raced cross with, with disc brakes? No. <clears throat> my first bike was actually a cantilever bike. Uh, yeah, I think the first three years that I was racing was on canny brakes. And that was the period of time which we just started to see the professionals come in with disc brakes. And I remember doing a lot of races going down descents with absolutely no ability to slow down or stop. And then the next season I got disc brakes and... I, I I kind of miss the argument of why not use them. So do you think that disc brakes is the biggest technological advancement in, in your cyclocross setup uh, throughout your career? Yes, I would agree with that. Absolutely. I mean, there's been a lot of little changes that we've seen, and but quite a few things have actually stayed the same. A lot of tire choices are pretty much the same treads and profiles, what they're racing on. 15 years ago and the bike geometries are <clears throat> pretty similar but i think disc brakes have definitely changed the game um talking technology i'm sure you do record your heart rate power output and so on and you do analyze the, all that after the races i'm just interested um quickly first you tell us your max heart rate and then maybe if you're allowed to do that you tell us how much time you spend in the red zone in, let's say, a 40 or 50-minute race. Is it 80% in the red, 90% in the red? And where and how would you recover to bring it down a little bit, to breathe a little bit? Yeah, that's a great question. <clears throat> so my max heart rate's about 180, I think 184 right now. And in a race, I'll hit that and probably maybe about a minute at that most, but um, quite a bit of the time is spent, I would say in a 15 minute race, probably 40 minutes are spent between like one, 175 and no more than that. Maybe the entire race is above 175. It's, it's seriously like 
I can't think of another discipline where you spend so much time, except for perhaps time trial, just putting out such an effort. But it's a different type of an effort. You're going from, like, in a time trial, it's a little bit more consistent. In cyclocross, it's really just about accelerating and then rest and accelerating and rest. But those, they're all just like micro accelerations and micro rests, maybe 10, 15 seconds at a time. And to go back a bunch of steps now that we've getting through all this technical spot uh, part of it, how did you get into cyclocross? What was your inspiration to enter into not only cycling, but like a niche, even subset of cycling being cyclocross? Um, I believe you were... Um, you, you live in Oregon, correct? Yes. So yeah, how did it, how did it all start? Yeah. So I hadn't really ever heard about it and heard about cyclocross until uh, a high school teacher invited me out. He was really into it. Uh, and so he invited me out to some local races and I, I was just immediately hooked. I had a blast. One of the things about cyclocross in the United States <clears throat> and especially in Oregon, is just how inclusive it is for everyone. You can be out there vying for the, the win in the elite race. You can be the best athlete there and having a great time. And then you can also be, uh, you've, this is your, your third bike ride of the year and you're still out there enjoying it just as much as the others. And there's all age ranges. You can have toddlers and then you can have your grandfather it's really a sport for everyone that's also a reason what i love so much about it you can do it with your kids with your parents you know with your other half and it's just a, a sport for everyone and I, i believe that's also some of the reasons why it is uh, so popular because you can do it with everyone right and we in lycra we all look the same right you could be a world champion or pro professor from harvard or just a panel beater from down the road on the bike we're all equal and that's what i really love about and i think what also stands out is it's such a great spectator sport cycling in general is i think it like over the years it's definitely with being able to, to cover it more easily, it's definitely the engagement in it has improved. But from the start, cyclocross is just so much easier to follow a race. It's on a pretty small circuit. Um, you only need so many cameras. You don't need a helicopter. You don't need a whole slew of um, uh, motorcycles that the film every second, and you can just see everything. And then as a spectator, not just from the TV, you can go to the course and you can see your favorite rider go past uh, where you're on the lap up to 10 times. And then you can go walk around and see them warming up and cooling down afterwards. It's, it's just great engagement, not only for the athletes themselves, but for the fans. I'm glad that you mentioned that because I've always been curious. You know, a lot of people used to ask us, what is it like going through that sea of people going up a mountain stage in the Tour de France? But I would imagine that the crowds would be much bigger in the European races, especially during that kind of Christmas period where there's so many of them. What, what, is, it, what is it like going through that, that tunnel of cheering uh, mostly drunk um, fans on the side of the road, you know, on the side of the course. I mean, is it is it 
motivating or is it kind of distracting? Yeah, that's a great question because I've, I've been thinking about it a lot recently. Due to the pandemic, um, we were able to have races. We were really lucky in that sense. However, there was no fans. And it was really strange. We'd be going around these courses and it'd, you'd be at certain points and it'd just be empty. It'd be like crickets on the side of the course and really quiet. And it was just kind of such a strange experience where you're almost like, who, who am I here racing for? But this year we've returned to, we went through the, the curse period with full fans, which meant I think at a couple of races, there was up to 15, 16, 17,000 people cramming around this park or this venue that you're on the riders. And it's such a, it really brought back that feeling of like, okay, this is the value of our sport. This is, I'm racing for all these people to enjoy. It's not just for myself as a rider, or for my mechanics who this is their job. It, it's like, we're racing for spectators and people here and the, they hear them. They not only cheer for the, the top riders at the front, but they're cheering for the, the rider who's just struggling to make the lead lap. They're, they're there supporting everyone. It's, it's really just such a great atmosphere that engage in. And isn't it, you probably put out the same watts, the same heart rate with spectators or without, but isn't it so much easier to make yourself hurt and suffer when you have a thousand people yelling your name or going, Forza, Forza, die, die, or go, 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 hop, hop, hop. Isn't it so much better and easier? Yeah, and there's also, you can never like, you know, you can never let your game face down, take a moment to kind of like, really, to breathe you have to you know make sure you're putting on that show and making it look like you're hurting pretty hard we'll be back after this short break how much does the course actually change from the first lap to the middle of the race to the end of the race is it no that's the line and that's where i'm going the whole time or does it change do you constantly have to be thinking about hey is this line faster is that line faster Because I would think yeah. after so many laps with you ladies going around and around that there's got to be a little bit of kind of rutting out in, in, in the, the course and whatnot. Yeah, especially in changing conditions or rain, uh, the course can be significantly different what you finish on from what you start. And so that, that's another part of just one of the, the dimensions you need to be aware of is how are things changing? And sometimes what I like to do is like... Maybe I'll be riding the course and the first few laps I'll be taking a line with another rider and then I'll kind of realize that there's this other line to the side of it that is less noticed and it's like a little trick that you can keep in your back pocket and when you really want to put out a good attack, you take that line and get a, a couple extra seconds of advantage over them. I had the chance to do a few events with Sven Nice and even now in retirement, he is super, super precise about tire, tire pressure. That is like his one and only. So he goes, yeah, it's going to be 3.4 at the start of the race. Then it goes down to 3.3 and a half in its second lap. Are you obsessed by tire pressure as well? It seemed to be a very important thing for cyclocross. Yeah, tire pressure is incredibly important in cyclocross. It's always such a fine balance. You want to be riding high enough for a pressure that you're not going to puncture or lose too much speed but you also want to be kind of pushing that line of how low can I can get 
can I get it in order to get the maximum traction? And so sometimes you, you do like apply a tactic into it. You know that the first half a lap is gonna, you're gonna want that higher pressure to make it over, the, to be fastest down the starting strip uh, or up a, a hard climb. And then maybe you'll you'll go into the pit and you'll jump on a different bike that has a, a tire pressure that's a, a couple uh, bar lower than the other one. And when I say a couple bar, I mean tenths. If you're really particular, hundredths of a bar or PSI, a couple PSI for those in the United States lower. Uh, and so what, the range of tire pressures that I tend to race on, I'll race from about one bar, which I think is 15 PSI to the highest I'll ride is 1.6 bar, maybe 19 PSI. Wow. That's, that's crazy. So you race for the Cannondale cyclecrossworld.com team, as well as the national team during some events during cyclocross season. But then you also race on the road for EF education, Tibco Silicon Valley bank. Uh, on the road. How do you break up your season in order to compete in both disciplines? And who do you communicate with from both organizations to kind of set your program and objectives? Yeah. So uh, backtrack a little bit. I Previously, I've raced for a Cannondale Cyclocross World, uh, that cyclocross program. And then Unfortunately, they folded. They had the fold as of March 2022. And I was really lucky that Linda Jackson, the owner of EF uh, Education, Tidco Silicon Valley Bank, saw this and immediately reached out to me saying, hey, what can we do to make a cyclocross program for you? And yeah, they, they built this full program uh, for it, the two riders are myself and Zoe Backstead. And it's really nice because originally I had been wondering how am I going to ride for two teams and do two different seasons. I was I had this fear that road season, they're going to run me all the way kind of to race me to the last possible moment and then immediately transition to cyclocross. However, with EF Education, TIPCO, SVB, we're able to really integrate the two. So give me a little break when I need it before I start cyclocross training. And then I think that the, the two seasons complement each other really well. Doing road racing gives me that nice kind of aerobic base, which I like to carry on to cyclocross. And through cyclocross, even though we race throughout the winter, I'm using it this year I'm going to carry straight through the do classics races. And so my thought is here that I'm going to already have touched that depth, that intensity in racing uh, and have it like fresh for classics races instead of maybe come in after an off season, after spending a lot of time in warmer weather and not being quite acclimated or acclimatized to the, the classics condition. And so hopefully that will give me an advantage going into these these dirty spring classics. So then I guess the next question logically would be 
where do you see your future in cycling and what type of rider you want to develop into. You want to go, I want to reach that podium at the World Championships first or I want to be top three at the Cyclocross World Cup and then I move to the road or you go, nah, road is just training for the more important cross season in the winter. Where do you, do you see yourself going in the future? In the way that they both complement each other in training, and fitness, I, I think they I carry the same goals and ambitions to both. Yes, I do want to get that podium at a world championship, and I do want to someday win a World Cup. But I would also like to do the same in a classics race. And really putting similar focus into both and seeing how I can use one season to better, better perform in the other season. They're, they're both really important to me. And I think that we're seeing that in, like, that's something I carry for myself as an athlete, but we're seeing many other athletes do the same, like Vanderpool and uh, Wout van Aert and Pidcock. They're carrying quite a bit of intensity and drive into their cyclocross seasons and then turning it over the perform well in classics and the tour. It, it's really... Uh, I think this well-rounded rider is really desirable right now. Um, Bobby, if I can just uh, be cut in quickly, just be sure you do think about yourself every now and then because I think Pitcock and Vought, they do it right. They give each other breaks when he need it. And I think uh, Matthew, he did ask too much of his body from Olympic in mountain biking, cyclocross, the classics, the tour, and, and so on and so on. And he is spectacular. But I think he overdid it a little and his body suffers a little. That's maybe one of the reasons why his back is not coming back. So just an advice, you don't have to listen to me, but sometimes just be selfish and go, no, my body tells me, stop right now. I need a week off or something because, you know, you don't want to burn yourself too early. Okay, back to you, Bobby. <laughs> Well, the obvious choice is you mentioned that wanting to prepare the classics. When I think of a cyclocross racer, I think of Strada Bianchi. I think of Paris-Roubaix. Are those two races that are high up on your list, or are there other ones that, um, that, that I missed there that, that you want to focus on during the, your classic season? No, you, you hit it quite straight on. I, I definitely have those, those dates on my calendar circled with bright red marker. I, I'm really looking forward to, I've never raced Strada Bianchi before, uh, so I'm really excited to go do it. And then Paris-Roubaix, I did it last year and it was, I, it was absolute chaos in kind of the best way. It, it felt like a cyclocross race that went on for three hours instead of 50 minutes. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to returning for that. And um, you will be going to um, the classics, or let's say especially Paris-Roubaix. You will have the freedom to go for yourself, or you will have a different captain in your team? I think we need to take it race by race and see how the season develops and who's really showing the most potential and leading closer into those races. That's a decision we'll make. But then we have to also consider the chaos that goes on in these races, like in Paris-Roubaix, you can designate somebody as your leader and then maybe they double flat in the first circuit or have a crash and you need to quickly adapt. So I see it like 
there's going to be the plan, but all of us on that team of six writers, we all need to be ready to seize the opportunity and get the best result we can for the team. So since you already talked about um, spending time or what we do outside of cycling, you're a young woman in Europe. What makes you tick? What makes you excited outside of um, cycling, outside of riding your bike? You like to chill, you like to read, you like to watch the movies or go to the cinema or go, go to concerts. What makes you excited? What do you look forward if you have a free weekend, for example? Yeah, no, it's, I like how you mentioned the movies. I always love going to the movies, going to a cinema. Um, it's a little treat. I, I don't get to do it so often because they race so much on the weekends. But it's always, nothing's more delightful than going out with a friend. Additionally, I, I enjoy cooking. Uh, it's always fun. Nothing's so satisfying as making a meal for someone else. And then probably one of my greatest, we'll call it a hobby, is uh, coffee. I, I really love coffee. Um, uh, I, try, I try to limit it to two cups a day because it's important to keep a balance, but I just find it so fascinating to learn about how it's like the, the production of it all the way from kind of the, the bean that's grown uh, and wherever it is in the world, how it's processed and then taking it all the way to however you're extracting that, that coffee from it, whatever method you use. Um, tricky question. Have you ever tried that? exclusive elusive coffee that goes through the digestion track of a little uh, i don't know it's a mix between a rat and a cat and mm -hmm. then it gets collected afterwards and they make coffee out of it it's supposed to be in the name is something with blue it's supposed to be the best coffee ever but i did not try yet have you ever heard of it did you ever try so i have heard of it i've never had the opportunity to try it and i kind of question whether it is actually the best coffee or maybe it's just the the hype that's it's been put through i it's an that's interesting so funny, concept Andy. that i thought was an urban myth uh we got to reach out to our listeners and get some opinions on the people that have tried that because putting it lightly through the digestive track as you did uh makes it sound you know not so bad but it's It's crap, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it comes so, out on the other side. Yes. So I just don't <laughs> see how that mixes with coffee. Um, but I do remember Bjarna Reese telling us that story. And he was like, you know, had his little pinky up and was like, oh, it was the best I've ever had. Boy, oh boy. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a pretty simple coffee guy. Just Nespresso or Keurig. Just, you know, give me a little, little warm liquid in the morning. But guys take it serious now. I mean, it's the temperature, it's the pressure. They got all these fancy machines. You know, I guess, I guess these guys are making a little bit more money than we used to make. But um, on that subject, you mentioned that women's cycling is getting stronger and supporting you ladies a lot better with better salaries. Um, you know, like your overall team, EF Education, you know, has a men's team a women's team and now they actually just inherited like uh like a junior team as well do you guys ever like get together under like one roof uh all those different teams or at least the elite men and elite women's team and kind of vibe off each other or have training camps together 
you know, we quite we haven't had the opportunity. Uh, it's been particularly difficult with COVID, just kind of trying to keep bubbles small last year. And this year, we're just jumping straight into racing. So we haven't had the full opportunity to, to come together as one great team. But it, it's really nice to have kind of this shared res resource pool with the men, uh, whether it's equipment or um, sponsors or management. It, it just it really kind of grows the network for not only the, the women's team and the juniors team, but I think it also helps the men's program as well. And um, Clara, you're only 25 years old. If we jump 15 years into the future, you be 40 and you look back at your career, what would make it in your own eyes a good career? What do you think? What, what would you want to achieve? A win, helping somebody else to win, or whatever, giving birth to two children in your career, having comebacks. What would make it a good career for you when you're 40 years old and you look back at it? Yeah, boy, that, that is a great question. I would say that having every season be a healthy, happy one or thereabout, whether, and I mean that not only physically, well, if I mean it more just kind of mentally and emotionally, every season feeling like I've worked with great people and I've done great work uh, and making sure that it, it remains stable and happy and consistent throughout that. Of course, there are the greater goals in there. Like it'd be amazing to someday hoist a, a cobble over my head or to, uh, yeah, win a, win, wear a rainbow jersey or get a medal at that. That, that would definitely be something to reflect back upon. But I think just, Have feeling like I created a career that was stable and productive would be what I what I aim to do, what my goal is. Okay, so to build off of Jens's question, 15 years down the road or whenever your career is over, you just told us your personal objectives. You know, you're new to the sport, but this the sport of women's cycling has never been better. What changes would you like to see in those 15 years or at the end of your career for the sport of women's cycling in general? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's just, it's interesting right now and something I've been thinking about right now, especially as I've been in Spain and Calpe and seeing all these men's world tour teams out there and training with kind of the latest and greatest technology and equipment. I think I saw someone doing a like a, a respiratory, having that little backpack in the mask where it measures your, your respiratory coefficient and just kind of this crazy like intensity and focus on performance. And then thinking like, I haven't seen too many women's world tour teams doing the same thing and thinking like, I wonder why that is. And ultimately, I think it's because We're, we're just kind of a few years from, or I guess I was talking about this with my friend Magali Rochette and saying, I haven't seen that many women's world tour teams doing that. Like we, we had this one camp, but it was mostly media and training. And she said, you know, well, maybe all the work you did for that media and sponsor outreach at the last camp will mean that next year you get to have this, the support that go do a like proper 
training camp where they're all focusing on every rider individually and really trying to highlight their strengths and uh, maximize their opportunity. And so I think reaching parity that we see with the men's world to our teams is something, it's ultimately a goal for us and I think it's attainable. Clara, it was such a pleasure and an honor for us that you give us the time like only a few days or weeks before the highest goal of the season. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks a million for being tonight our guest on uh, the Bobby and Jens podcast. Thanks again for being with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. And I guess my question is, uh, am I your first cyclocross athlete on the podcast or have you had any before? Um, we did have the honor to have Tom Pitcock on a podcast before he became Olympic champion and world champion. So we do actually have a little bit of a good mojo, even better as this mm. one. We have an interview with Lizzie Deignan on Tuesday. Our podcast goes live online on Friday. And 24 hours later, she wins the first ever Paris-Roubaix only days after our podcast. So we do have a bit of a good mojo with us. Okay. Well, I have a World Cup this weekend in Spain and I'm counting on you guys. Yes, absolutely. We'll be there. Well, that's all the time we have for this week, folks. Thank you to Clara Hansinger for being our guest. Thanks a million for listening. And please give us a five-star review and share us with your friends. The show was a Velo News production in association with Shock Giraffe. The producer was Mark Payne, and this episode was edited by Tim Moza. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bobby and Jens and share your cycling stories with us. <laughs>